Hello, I'm Lucy, and welcome to Footnoting History. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing James Weldon Johnson, an author whose works, today, are better known than his life. The name of James Weldon Johnson may not be widely recognized today. I confess that when I recently came across his portrait in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., I didn't recognize his name. But then I read the plaque and realized that he was the author of Lift Every Voice and Sing, one of the favorite hymns of the Bronx Parish where I spent eight years. This hymn has rung out from church bells to encourage Black Lives Matters marchers and is, of course, beloved by countless congregations. It's been described and adopted by the NAACP as the national anthem of Black Americans. And its optimism and lyricism are characteristic of Johnson's gifts as a poet. Johnson exhorted his listeners, his singers, quote, facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won, unquote. His vision of the future spoke to many in his own time and his power as an author was hailed by black and white literati alike. But Johnson's literary legacy is a debated one. Some, starting with Ralph Ellison, have critiqued him for not using his immense influence in more radical ways, for not being iconoclastic enough in the face of a racist cultural establishment. Born in Florida during the era of reconstruction, Johnson was educated at Atlanta University, funded in part by the Freedmen's Bureau, after which he became principal of the Stanton School, where he himself had been taught. Taking on this job, which made him the target of envy and antagonism, was the moment that Johnson singled out in his autobiography as marking his transition from adolescence to adulthood. The next year, still at the age of only 24, he founded the Daily American, a newspaper focusing on black life. It ran for no longer than a year, and Johnson himself described it in his autobiography as a failure, but it demonstrated his talent and his enterprise and introduced him to some of the leading figures of the black intelligentsia. After a stint being a lawyer and a school principal at the same time, remarkably, Johnson moved to New York City, where he partnered with his musician brother to write for Broadway. It was during this period, too, that they wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing for the Stanton School, and, at least according to Johnson, more or less forgot about it afterwards, leaving it to spread by word of mouth, students teaching other students, until it blossomed into popularity. How does an artist just forget about one of his most iconic works? Part of the answer is that Johnson was an activist and politician, as well as an artist, and increasingly, he sought to fuse these two identities. After two years studying literature at Columbia University, Johnson just stopped doing that in favor of becoming the American consul to Venezuela. How does a school principal turned editor turned songwriter become consul to Venezuela? Well, through the influence of no less a personage than Booker T. Washington. And it was while consul that Johnson wrote the autobiography of an ex-colored man. This is not, however, his autobiography. The autobiography of an ex-colored man is a profound and poignant novel that Johnson published anonymously, and critics loved it. 
writing the novel itself was part of what Johnson had wanted to do while serving in Venezuela. He had embraced the move as an escape, a spiritual refreshment, a chance to leave behind, if only temporarily, the racial politics of the U.S. In Venezuela, Johnson was able to take on a new identity, a hybrid identity, it's been argued, as diplomatic representative. His polish, his education, his rhetorical skill, and his lifelong gift for snappy dressing were all deployed as political tools here. By his own account, Johnson's original goal of taking the consulship as a sinecure was transformed by his experience there. He describes himself as growing ambitions as a consul, keeping his eyes on diplomatic developments, looking out for opportunities for American business, and organizing baseball clubs, among other things, as a means of promoting cultural contact and understanding. He also writes accounts of state dinners and state dances with a verb that would do credit to the spy novels of John le Carré or Graham Greene. In 1916, having returned to the U.S., Johnson accepted the position of field secretary for the NAACP. Johnson devoted his energies to opening new branches of the society and expanding membership. In his autobiography, he wrote with pride about his work with the organization during this formative period of its history. He also wrote, with understated savagery, about the hypocrisy of the white political establishment. In Washington, D.C. in 1917, Johnson observed that around the White House and the State Army and Navy building, in a time when the nation was in a panic, as he wrote, over the rumors of pro-Germans and spies in our midst, every man of the troops guarding the home of the president and the offices of the three principal departments of the government was a black man, unquote. In that same summer, the St. Louis massacres broke out with violence against the lives and property of black Americans, a bitter irony, as Johnson observed, when they were simultaneously being urged to fight for their country in World War I. The resultant protests in New York were described by Johnson as one of the strangest sights ever seen on Fifth Avenue. Johnson was active in legal and political engagement in response to this and other racist violence, while simultaneously publishing poetry. In short, he was a very public and very popular figure. In 1920, the NAACP appointed him executive secretary, a position in which he continued to bring attention to racism, lynching, and segregation. Johnson was also influential as a literary authority, editing a poetry collection in 1922, five years before the reissue of the autobiography of an ex-colored man under his own name. Johnson was convinced that in the multiplicity of voices he collected, a distinctively black voice, culture, and creativity could be identified, and he served as a passionate advocate for its worthiness. It's worth noting, I think, that in the poetry collection he edited in 1922, popular enough to be reissued in 1931, Johnson brings together a diverse range of poets and styles. Some of them use folk vocabulary and oral histories, others reference Chaucer and Keats. Several of the writers, like Jesse Redmond Fawcett and County Cullen, are still recognized as leading voices in the Harlem Renaissance. And these varied voices illuminate a debate in which Johnson was an active participant, 
on the question of how Black American poets should best use their authentic voices through the art forms they've mastered in Ivy League educations, through reproducing the dialects that had taken shape in the largely oral traditions of Black communities in preceding decades. Both options are on display in the edited volume, which contains folk songs, proverbs, sonnets, and ballads. Johnson himself chose to balance the rhetorical patterns of folk traditions and oral genres like the sermon with the spelling and punctuation patterns of standard English. Some scholars have interpreted this as Johnson's way of simultaneously honoring distinctive Black cultural traditions and performing a sort of gentility traditionally defined by middle-class white Americans. To white critics at the time, this balancing or blending was one of freshness and sophistication. Literary debates aside, Johnson's poetry, especially God's trombones, was embraced enthusiastically as a dynamic engagement both with biblical texts and with the Black sermon tradition. The Creation, first poem in this popular series, illustrates this. It's a lovely poem, retelling Genesis in its own language. It ends as follows. And there the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped it in his own image." Unquote. This evocation of God as a working-class Black woman bending over the infant in her care is, I think, remarkably beautiful and can still read as startling in its boldness today. Johnson worked and wrote not only at a pivotal historical moment, but at a moment that was recognized at the time as marking a historical transition. Historians love when this happens. Johnson was singled out as one who, quote, could look behind as well as before, unquote, in the early 20th century history of political and artistic engagement by Black Americans. He was recognized by many as being himself a figure who bridged two generations of Black intellectual leadership. Johnson's own work came in the wake of that of W.E.B. Dubois and Booker T. Washington. He himself was a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance and was influential for a younger generation of artists and activists. His work as secretary of the NAACP, hailed by the poet County Cullen as brilliant and militant. In the 1932 essay collection, America as Americans See It, Johnson asserted that Black cultural contributions were not only vibrant in his own historical moment, but had long been a vibrant part of American culture, no matter how much they were co-opted, mocked, or ignored by the white majority. In his own words, quote, a positive and active force in American life, with contributions to the national cultural store not merely of material values, but of aesthetic and spiritual values." Unquote. Johnson argued, indeed, that with the possible exception of skyscrapers, Black Americans' folktales, dances, and music, from spirituals to jazz, were the only art forms universally recognized as distinctively American. In closing, I'd like to turn to Johnson's autobiography, on which I've drawn throughout this podcast. Along this way is a rich and poignant work in which James Weldon Johnson recounts, largely anecdotally, his experiences as student and teacher, as traveler, as politician, 
and of course, centrally, as a black American, as one who both represented his country abroad and was often the target of racism at home. In telling a story of how he avoided a confrontation on a train by allowing people to assume he was Cuban, Johnson records that, quote, in an incident, as Negroes must often do, I was rapidly balancing the vital chances in a suddenly presented situation that involved race, unquote. Dryly, he informed his audience that no matter the legal realities, there were many areas of the U.S. where daring to travel by train could be a matter of life and death for Black Americans. Johnson's insistence on also highlighting his participation from an early age in a society that was de facto integrated, if still limited by segregation, can be read as a brilliant rhetorical strategy within his autobiography, and it is. But also, it is an insistence that contributed to Richard Wright's sense in a later generation that James Weldon Johnson had, quote, gone begging to white America, unquote, attempting to persuade white audiences of black Americans' full and fully realized humanity. Scholars today would disagree with the harshness of this assessment, but certainly Johnson did work to assert, both implicitly and explicitly, that the creativity, the power, the brilliance of black Americans was not only potential, was not only relative. Rather, this creativity and brilliance, which Johnson himself worked diligently to foster through both political and artistic engagement, were unique, active, and already, despite the constant and unrelenting pressures of systemic racism, fully realized. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>